Let's talk about skeptical doubt. Um, as I said, one of the things that I hope to accomplish over the course of this weekend, hope I haven't bitten off more than I can chew, is for you to get a clearer understanding of what enlightenment is about. I, I would like to demystify it. It is a mystical experience by nature, but it is enormously over-mystified. And so if I can demystify it and make it more understandable, then perhaps I can help you uh, to diminish somewhat your doubt that there is that such a thing is possible, and especially that you can attain it. And likewise in the process, if uh, I think if I can succeed in dis- demystifying it, uh, it will actually make it easier for you to attain it because you won't uh, you won't be going in uh, so many wrong directions with it or have expectations that get in your way. So it's important to talk about skeptical doubt. The interesting thing, of course, is that you know if when you have undergone that transformation that represents stream entry, uh, of course you've, you've had it at that point. You don't have doubt anymore. You you've had you've had the experience. You've had a taste. You look at yourself and over. Uh, as I said, yes, and you know you have to keep in mind that the experience itself is not definitive, but the changes that take place. But when you start to notice in yourself how you've changed, then doubt disappears. When you reflect on on how you saw things in the past and the effect it had on you, and how you see things now and how different it is, then that helps to uh, it goes beyond helping that that very much eradicates doubt. But prior to uh, achieving stream entry yourself, I can say understanding it, which I hope we can make a lot of uh, progress in this weekend, is an important thing to help overcoming doubt. The other thing is to be able to uh, recognize enlightened beings in the world. If you have a question, is there really such a thing or is this mm-hmm. some kind of fairy tale that, uh, you know, like, uh, exactly on par with, you know, if I if I go to church on Sunday, that when I die I'll go to heaven. Or, you know, is this, is this something that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never know and experience because it doesn't really exist. I know some of you, you know, that question comes up. Sometimes you really believe it. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have some confidence in it. But other times the doubts must come up. So if you can see people that seem to manifest the characteristics and behaviors of enlightened beings, that helps enormously. Because at the very least, you can say to yourself, well, for sure I wouldn't mind having those kinds of... I wouldn't mind being more like that person is. And they are around all the time. I'll tell you something interesting that just it happened that night before last. I read an interview with Leonard Cohen, 
in Shambhala Sun from November of 2007. Everyone knows who Leonard Cohen is, I believe. Yeah, Leonard entered my life back when uh, uh, Suzanne took us down to her place by the river. <laughs> and although I've, I've never met him, he's been a part of my life ever since. <laughs> and also, about 40 years or so ago, uh, Leonard became interested in Zen Buddhism. And uh, uh, actually, for most of that 40 years, he, uh, many years, did a three month retreat at Mount Baldy. And then he spent about eight or nine years as a monk full time at Mount Baldy Zen Center. That was that period of time where we didn't hear much from him. But you know, then that entered. What's really interesting is the changes that uh, occurred in him. Um, he did a concert in London that's available on DVD. Have you seen that? Yes. And how totally different he is than the person he used to be. You know, and you can look and say, oh, that's how an enlightened being does a music concert in London. <laughs> and, I didn't see it. I've heard, I've heard it. Oh, you've heard it. Times. Okay. In well, it's time. really something to see. Yeah. To see to see his face. To see how he behaves. To hear the things that he says. And, uh, yes, it's quite wonderful. And then, and then I read this, uh, as I say, it was just the other night, I read this interview in Shambhala Sun. Uh, and you read that, and you know, if you go back to this, uh, these descriptions in this handout here that I gave you, um, what is an enlightened being like? Um, there is a profound realization of living fully in the present moment. You really get that from the way he talked. A deep sense of relaxation that arises from understanding that there is nowhere else to go and nothing else to do. The magnanimity and spaciousness is observed as compared to the finite, limited nature of the individual self, um, and so on. You know, so there are beings that you can look at, and, and Leonard Cohen would be one of them in his current manifestation. That you can look at and say, well, at the very least, uh, that would be a nice way to be. <laughs> <laughs> so. And <clears throat> there are many others, uh, and, it, and it helps to be on the lookout for them. You know, uh, the Dalai Lama is—you—you uh, you can't go wrong. You know, uh, looking at the Dalai Lama, examining his situation, <laughs> and saying, "Wow, if I could be like that, if I could deal with what he has to deal with, and do it the way he does." Joyfully. So the, these are ways that help, but, but you have to have this understanding. As long as it sounds like something impossible and unreachable, your confidence in it is not going to be, uh, be very strong. And I think that you know, the, the, the impression that's been created about it has partly come from good intentions uh, in order to motivate people to uh, 
strive diligently to attain their own awakening, but it has had an unfortunate effect of making it sound like something that, I'm not sure anything like that is really possible. And even if it is, according to what they're saying, it might take me a hundred thousand lifetimes, and only if I live in a way that's so different than I do now that <laughs> can't see it that. And so that that hasn't necessarily served everyone quite so well. I I I certainly think that any any human being has the potential to become enlightened. You know to at least the first stage of enlightenment. Yes? Uh, on this, uh, what, how do you view the Tibetan Buddhist view of the four bodies of a Buddha, which seem very different from Ahadship, and they seem very unattainable compared to mm-hmm. Ahadship, but there, it's expressly mentioned there that Ahadship is a stage on the way to Buddhahood, and there's still this, these other levels to go to reach Buddhahood. And then you attain qualities which aren't listed here, like omniscience, like being able to see all three times up in like one moment. And these are and attaining, you know, bodies of light and all these kind of things which you haven't mentioned. Is, yes, where, that's, where, that's how true. How does that fit into this? Well, there's. All these things, they're elaborations of the idea of Samasambuddha. So, so this, uh, what you're, you're calling full enlightenment, would be uh, the Samasambuddha. And there is, uh, I, I think that it's, I think it, it is a serious error to posit that there is any difference between the enlightenment itself of an arahant and a samasambuddha. It's indefensible in terms of, of the doctrines of Buddhism in themselves. But the idea that, that uh, uh, the idea of a samasambuddha is that over uh, tremendous numbers of lifetimes that there has been this process of perfection that gives rise to being who has uh, much greater powers to benefit other beings than uh, an arhat does. And that's the idea, basically, right there. Is that if um, now there's all sorts of technical contradictions and things like that when you look at it, because uh, there's assumption that somehow an arhat uh, ceases to exist after he becomes fully enlightened and the body dies and gone, you know, right? Whereas a bodhisattva who hasn't become an arahant can be reincarnated as basically the same being over and over again for for hundreds of thousands of lifetimes until he becomes a Samasambuddha. Um, I believe all of these different teachings serve a purpose in one form or another to, to are intended to help people in, in their path. I think that the first mistake to make is to assume that any of these metaphysical descriptions are true. 
They're all empty. They're all ways of looking at things. And as ways of looking at things, they can be looked at in different ways that are equally valid. And so to ask the self to yourself the question, is the Tibetan view correct and is some other view uh, mistaken, is, is, is not a very useful question. Um, now, you, I, you said that the Arhat is a stage on the way to becoming fully enlightened. I haven't heard that particular doctrine. Usually the one that you encounter in Mahayana is that, is that if you become an Arhat, it's all over with. You've lost your chance. As though there's a self-existent personality that goes through these lives, and that one blew it. <laughs> but, no. Uh, on the other hand, there is an equally valid way of discussing and thinking about this intellectually, to say that, okay, if the self that we think we are is an illusion, and if an enlightened being, an arhat, realizes that. An arhat neither ceases to exist uh, nor continues to exist at the time of the death of the body and the dissolution of the mind. Because the five aggregates were all that manifested and that's all that passed away. What the Buddha said that continued was the karmic predisposition predisposition is the karma, the interconnected karma, which passes on and continues. Just as in the world of appearances, all that is material is interconnected and everything affects everything. Uh, modern physics tells us that two electrons that were separated went opposite directions at the time of the Big Bang are still connected in a way such that what happens to one of them now on one side of the universe affects what happens to the other one on the other side of the universe. So if the we're in the world of appearances, the science of physics tells us that everything material is totally interdependent and interconnected, uh, why should we assume that that which is, whether you call it spiritual or mental, doesn't matter, but you know whatever the realm is that these karmic predispositions occupy is any less so. Everything has consequences. We're told that the Buddha, that an enlightened being, creates new, no new karma for himself. But did the, did the actions of the Buddha after his enlightenment have consequences? That's a ludicrous question, right? Of course, and continues to have, and will continue to have. So... What we're really discussing when we talk about arahants versus samasambuddhas and bodhisattvas and so forth is metaphysical descriptions of the way that reality unfolds. And all they are is ways for our mind to conceptualize and create constructions uh, to help us to understand that in useful ways. And I feel all these different sets of constructions that may appear to be contradictory to each other are, they're just that, they're just constructions. One is no more correct uh, or incorrect than another. They were created 
to serve a purpose, and that purpose is limited to the realm of conceptual formations. So as a part of a body of teachings, the, the, the view of the bodhisattva, uh, reincarnated over hundreds of thousands of eons to become a Samasambuddha, that's a conceptual construction that serves a purpose within a particular context. And if it's helpful to you, and if it's an essential part of the context in which you're practicing it, then embrace it to the degree that you can. And to the degree that you can, let it be. It's not necessary. Uh, the nature, if anything that we have to say, you know, in a more general sense, is true about enlightenment and Buddhas, then these are not problems that we need to concern ourselves with. That we, if, if everything is interconnected, if we're all one, if the only thing that continues is that uh, those perfections that have come into being in one psychophysical entity, one collection of aggregates, then they are going to continue and their power is going to continue to evolve uh, as, as long as there are beings coming into existence and going out of existence. I can accept that. Become enlightened in this lifetime. Be a bodhisattva. Practice bodhicitta. I think that is, that is the message. Uh, what disturbs me is when I hear these teachings put in the form of uh, you don't want to become enlightened because, you know, because becoming enlightened is selfish and uh, it keeps you from becoming a fully enlightened being who can help other, all other beings throughout all eternity. Instead, I don't, I'd like to say, become enlightened for the sake of helping all other beings you know, in this form that you're in as much as you possibly can and, and trust that, that as a part of the uh, ultimate wholeness of whatever is, that that's not going to end with the dissolution of your body and mind. And it can take on any number of, of forms in any number of different ways. So it, it's a wonderful ideal that I am willing, I am willing to strive however long and however diligently it takes, even if it is hundreds of thousands of lifetimes. That is a, a, a beautiful motivation to hold in your human heart and to conceptualize with your human brain. But it's a terrible thing if that thought in your human brain causes your heart to turn to hopelessness and dread and this is an impossible thing. I can't do this. Better go have a beer and find a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> become a stream entrant 
or a once-returner or a non-returner, and then decide whether you don't want to take a chance on becoming an arhat or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that's come into my awareness a lot lately, like over and over, is the teaching that enlightenment, if you believe that it's somewhere else, like it's somewhere out there, yeah. and you're seeking it, yeah. that, you're, that you're doomed. Yeah. Well, you're, you're not doomed, but you're going to be... You're never going to find You're it. not going to get it until you give up that idea. Right, yeah. okay. So can you talk about that a little bit? <clears throat> Well, yes, uh, uh, that's really uh, what I'm saying when I say to, to, we need to get rid of all of the mistaken ideas that get in the way. <clears throat> if you think of enlightenment as a, uh, as something to be, um, something that you don't have that you need to have or something that's someplace else that you, you need to go to that other place, then those concepts are going to be limiting. Uh, enlightenment is it is right here and now. It's ceasing to be deluded about the way things are. It is not getting something you don't have. It's getting rid of something that stands in the way of you recognizing what you already have and, and what you already are. Uh, and the, the, the truth that we're talking about is it's not somewhere else and it's not some other time. It's always right here and it's right now. And it's a question of realizing it and recognizing it. Uh, the uh, the Buddha nature. When we say the Buddha nature is in you, uh, it's not it's not something that you're going to get from somewhere else. It's an awareness. Well, it's the it's it's the true nature. It's the ultimate truth. It's the ultimate truth when all of the delusions are gone. And yes, it does have this one positive characteristic of awareness or, or, or consciousness. Other than that, all of the descriptions of it are pretty much limited to saying what those, what it's not, and all the things that it's not are the things that are, are conceptual formations that uh, are what our mind is doing to truth. One way to understand Enlightenment is that it is the cessation of the activity of your mind that keeps you from recognizing things as they really are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, last night we talked about, uh, you mentioned deconstruction of personality, and I said that the meditation process, the process of enlightenment, involves deconstructing the cognitive processes that uh, keep creating our perception of things the way they are. I, that is the delusion that we're talking about. That when we say ignorance, uh, in a way maybe we should say illusion instead of ignorance. Because the ignorance that we are 
overcoming or the delusion we are overcoming is the one that's created by our mind because it helps bodies like ours create more bodies like ours that behave in ways that create more bodies like ours. <laughs> I, you know, uh, could there be a clearer expression of the of the endless cycle of uh, birth and death, you know, of samsara, the wheel of samsara, than what we all do. We come into this world programmed, born to reproduce and die so that our offspring can reproduce and die, so that their offspring can be born, reproduce, and die. Ad infinitum, to, you know. That is that is the wheel of samsara. Um, and it's not even that there is a bad thing that organisms, you know, are born, reproduce, and die so that their offspring will do the same. Um, that is the way the material universe evolves conscious and spiritual beings. But we occupy, at least in the part of the universe that we see, we occupy this very, very special niche. We no longer need to continue in that delusion. We no longer need to act out of the compulsions of desire and aversion, and we no longer need to suffer. We can stop doing that. And even having stopped doing that, we can still allow others of our kind to come into existence. But we can create a world in which these new rebirths are able to, just as we have, transcend their ignorance, transcend their slavery to innate compulsions, and to rise above the world of suffering that otherwise characterizes the human condition. We need to do that, too. Yes? Um, I have a question that I think I've been working over for a while, and Pam kind of brought it back to my, back in my mind. When, when you talk about, or when, when they talk about Buddha nature as this potential that exists, there seems like there's two ways to, to understand that, that it's a potential that, that all sentient beings have, um, and that can be realized through this progression. But another way, I'm, I'm wondering, is it something that can be realized to a degree, even along the path at any stage, the, the real quality of that Buddha nature cannot be kind of felt into at any point in the, pro in the path? Or is it something that you only really um, get into that to any degree after stream entry, like really recognize what this Buddha nature is, what it feels like, how to act through it? You're asking, can we tap into that Buddha nature at any time? Is that yeah, any time along the path. Yeah. We're assuming that maybe even some stage in the path you can start to get a taste of it. But it doesn't mm -hmm. take this Mahapala yeah. experience to actually see it to any degree. Yes, at any time. As a matter of fact, we all... The, the Buddha nature is always there. And, and uh, uh, 
it comes through in many forms from time to time. Uh, Genuinely altruistic and compassionate behavior comes from our innate Buddha nature. And we all have uh, little experiences of wisdom that goes far beyond what we normally understand and what we ever are aware of having learned anywhere else. And that's the Buddha nature coming through. It's always there. Um, you know, how, how deeply it's buried, it depends on uh, the burden of afflictions and defilements that you have in your mind. And, uh, and even there, even with some huge burden of afflictions and defilements, there can be uh, those moments where uh, they get out of the way long enough for that Buddha nature to come through. So it's not something that is, is only known after stream entry. But the important thing about stream entry and about enlightenment is changes take place, permanent changes take place in the way the mind works. And that opens up all of the new possibilities. Um, yes, it's... What is important about the definition of stream entry, and we didn't even get to the point of talking about that yet, but I know you all read about it, right? And so we don't have to keep following this in order. We can, a little more stream of consciousness here, thank God it takes for Okay. <clears throat> stream entry is not defined in terms of an experience in the sutras. As a matter of fact, you really have to go to the Buddhist teachings and want badly for there to be such a thing as an enlightenment experience to discover it in there. It is spoken of predominantly as a permanent change in the way that a person is. Okay? A stream entrant is somebody who has a change in views, and a change in attitude, and a change in behavior. It is not a person who has had a particular kind of experience. Now, obviously, for a permanent change to take place like that, there is some, some point that you can say before that the person was this way, and after that the person was that way. And something has permanently changed. Subjectively, experientially, the person who has undergone this transformation, whether it happened in some amazing, profound experience that lasted for a moment or, or for 20 minutes or whatever it was, whether it's a result of that or whether they can't quite pinpoint when and how it happened, it doesn't matter, but <clears throat> the person recognizes they reflect and say, I'm seeing things differently than I used to. And for some, interestingly enough, that only comes through, uh, that dawns on them when they see how other people are reacting and they say, that's what I used to do. I don't do that anymore. Or something happens and they recollect 
how they would have uh, reacted. And then they think about it and they realize, well, I see things differently now than I used to. Something has changed in me. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's described by some as being a rewiring of the brain. And when it does happen in a sudden event, which it does for many people, um, especially nowadays, because the whole orientation of the Dharma teachings and the trainings nowadays is towards bringing about this dramatic event. And so naturally a lot of people who are successful have that experience. But that's what it's like. It's, it's afterwards, it's, wow, something happened. I'm changed. It's like something went in and rewired my brain, and now the way my mind works is differently. You know, it, it's, I, I'm reacting to things, and I can see that it used to create this feeling and this attitude, and instead, now, it's different. And when that change takes place, it's much easier. All of the things that you do on the path towards stream entry, <clears throat> you'll need to continue working on them, but it's so much easier now. And the results of the work you do is so much more dramatic. It's still a continuing process, but um, the if we look at virtuous versus non-virtuous behaviors, now, stream entrants still engage in non-virtuous behaviors. There is a myth uh, that I think comes out of the monastic environment. If somebody becomes enlightenment and enlightened in a monastery and they spent who knows how many years strictly following the, the winia, the, the, the code of discipline, uh, it may be that all the minor transgressions that they used to be subject to, they're no longer subject to. There is a myth that the stream entrant you know, has perfect virtue. But if you look back at what the Buddha said, uh, he didn't talk about stream entrants having perfect virtue. He talked about stream entrants <coughs> when, they, uh, when they engaged in some transgression, recognizing it and making amends and doing their best not to do it again. Um, and this is the kind of thing, in terms, there is a change, uh, a way of putting it, is that there is now a new moral compass that is internal instead of external. A person is no longer functioning from a set of rules that says, don't do this and don't do that, because a change has taken place inside. There is no longer the same degree of attachment to the self and there is no longer the same degree of innate inclination to put one's own interests above somebody else, or to tolerate the uh, suffering or, or experience of injustice or something else by someone else. One sees oneself and one sees others in a much more equitable way than before. The result is, that you don't need to follow external rules of not harming, not engaging in false speech, which none of us like to be lied to, not engaging in harsh speech, not engaging in divisive speech, so on and so forth. 
those are now, your following of those precepts now is not because you have a list of rules that you've committed to follow, but because your heart, in your heart, it no longer makes sense to do those kinds of things. Now, you will still make transgressions out of habit. <clears throat> and a stream entrant presented with the right circumstances might engage in harsh speech. But the difference is that the stream entrant, now before they became a stream entrant, they already had to have been working on their virtue. They already had to have been practicing mindfulness and trying to recognize when they did such a thing and to not do it or to make amends for it. The difference now as a stream entrant is that that's all coming from a much deeper place. It's coming from the way the mind processes reality instead of a set of rules outside and by which, following which I hope that I will become uh, an enlightened being someday. It's coming from in here. And so when it happens, the degree of mindfulness that greets the arising of, of the inclinations uh, of the, of the uh, intentions behind the actions, it's immediate. Right? And it is far more likely to stop it in the act. Or if it fails to act that quickly, it's going to recognize fairly soon afterwards, oh, wow, look what I did. You know, let me see what I can do to take care of that. Let me see what I can do about that. So this is the kind of change that we're talking about making in ourselves. We're, we want to rewire our brains. And as you know, What's been discovered is that our brains are very plastic and they actually can be rewired in amazing ways. What we're talking about doing here is we have over our life constructed an idea, the idea of self, the conceptual self, and we have this inherent sense of self and those two acting together uh, have served as the, uh, the uh, I say, sort of the, the focal point or the, what a, we also have these instincts for desire and aversion that arise, the craving. And so these have served as the, as the focus for how desire and aversion arise and how they manifest. Right? This is how we've been programmed. What's happening with the stream entrant is we've altered that programming so that now desire and aversion when they take their root in the idea of who and what we are and the sense of self, that root is so much weaker now because the mind no longer believes in its created idea of self in the same way. And so it makes it so much easier to deal with things. And the same thing with suffering. Our suffering is rooted in that in, in the fact that the mind creates suffering. You know, the idea that I suffer, that you suffer, that's a false description. Your mind or my mind has neural circuits that flood the brain with a certain kind of electrical activity that we subjectively experience as suffering. And those circuits are activated when certain combinations of events happen you know, the brain processes information and 
some part of the brain basically, uh, you could say, makes a decision that that's the appropriate time to generate the feeling of suffering. See what I'm saying? So, suffering is something your mind does. Well, it, it served an evolutionary purpose. When you felt suffering, then you took some action to relieve your suffering, which is usually an action that that improved your survival or enhanced your ability to reproduce and to raise your offspring. So it's all part of that same thing, once again. But suffering is just a thing that the mind imposes on itself. And when you change the way the mind works, then uh, you change, first of all, the likelihood that the mind's going to create this sense of suffering. And secondly, you, you create the possibility that when the mind does create suffering, that other parts of the mind can look at this and say, this doesn't need to happen. We can let go of this. So that's what we're doing. That's it's. We're changing the way our brains work. We're changing the way our minds work, and we're creating a possibility to change even more the way our brains and minds work. When we cease to be, when our mind ceases to believe so firmly in the product of the eye-making part of the mind, you could what's that's hypothesize that there's a part of the mind and maybe even a part of the brain that we can say its primary function is eye-making. It tells the story of our lives. And it stores the story of our lives. And it defends the story of our life. And it wants to see things happen that support and maintain the ongoing story of our life. So that's the part of our mind that is the eye-making part of our mind. So... And the eye-making part of our mind and the inherent sense of self that we have that's built in at a really, really deep level. You know, if we wanted to find it in the brain, it's probably way down there in those deep structures that were formed in very primitive uh, 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 vertebrates a long, long time ago. And we still carry them with, with us. So, the and, and the most recent thing would be this part of the uh, the eye-making part of the mind that creates the story of who we are. I doubt if lizards tell themselves the story of their life to a big degree. They live in the present a lot more than we do. Right? So you've got that. And then you've got a brain that has all of these uh, emotions and you know the you know what instincts are. Instinct is a program that's built in that every time the stimulus comes up, exactly the same behavior comes out of it, right? And then on the other hand, human beings can act in a way that's purely based on reason, on rational. We can analyze a situation that we've never encountered before, that maybe no human being has ever encountered before. Brand new situation. And we can evaluate it, and we can choose a particular action at that we feel is appropriate to our analysis of the existing situation. So here we have two ends of the spectrum. Behavior that arises out of pure reason, and behavior that arises out of pure instinct. 
Well, emotions are something. In animals that can learn and change, there's some animals, everything they do is instinct. They have no capacity to learn anything. Now. They have no capacity to analyze a new situation. But a lot of these animals also don't have uh, anywhere near the kind of capacity that we have for analysis and reason. So they come into being equipped with this whole array of emotions that get triggered by certain factors and then incline them to behave in a certain way. They're kind of like instincts, but they're more flexible than instincts. And they depend, not like an instinct, you know, with... Uh, with certain tropical fish, the male, when he sees uh, a particular shape with a red spot on it, immediately goes and mates with it, no matter if it's a piece of plastic or what it is. You know, the, the, the instinct in these tropical fish, I used to keep tropical fish, and the instinct is if, if something has, has a rougher, roughly oval shape with a red spot on it, you do your best to mate with it. That's a pure instinct. Uh, and, and so, with emotions, it's not so rigidly confined to a certain kind of visual or other stimulus, but rather the mind processes experience and it triggers an emotion. It will trigger anger, or it will trigger hatred, or it will trigger desire, or it will trigger, trigger lust. Right? right? So this is what emotions are. And then behaviors come out of that and the behaviors aren't, you know, with tropical fish, they always do the same thing. They swim in the same circles. They blow the same bubbles. You know, it's, the mating ritual is always exactly the same. But with emotions, they push us in a particular direction, but there's still a lot of flexibility in how we behave. You know, uh, if we get angry, whether we shout or whether we grab something, you know, and who we hit, and sometimes we... Uh, restrain ourselves. So there's there's some plasticity there in, in how emotions are acted out. So there's somewhere between reason and instinct. And they serve a lot of animals really well. As long as the emotions you come equipped with and, and the things that trigger those emotional reactions work towards your survival and reproduction more often than they fail, then the tendency for those emotions to be continued is going to be there, right? And so you look at, at the way organisms who have emotions as part of their behavioral apparatus, you know, you can see, oh, this is this is this is an evolutionary device you know, and it doesn't have to work all the time, and it doesn't have to make the organism happy. You know, it doesn't matter if 40% of the time it results in the organism dying, you know. As far as Mother Nature is concerned, you know, it works 60% of the time, and so it's going to be continued, right? And it doesn't matter how much suffering or unhappiness the individual organism experiences as a result of this, you know or even how much collateral damage comes from this behavior, as long as the end result, as long as the net result favors the, the multiplication and increase of the organism that manifests these behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. That's all that's necessary. So here we are, we find ourselves human beings, 
with with an ego self and with an, with this deep inherent sense of our separateness, and we're equipped with a bunch of emotions that basically they all come down to one form or another of manifestations of craving, of desire and aversion. Right? And of course our mind goads itself into behaving in certain ways by generating feelings of happiness or feelings of suffering. So that's what we that's what you are. You're a neurological device which will make itself either happy or miserable depending on whether or not it seems to be fulfilling the desires, satisfying the desires and aversions related to its own idea of uh, what it is as a self. In the first stage of enlightenment, you deal with one of the easiest components of this. It's the... it's. Think of it as the newest and most superficial one. The belief in this construct that your modern human prefrontal cortex has created of the self that you are. And this unlocks the key to get to the others. In the next two stages of the once-returner and the non-returner, you work on changing the way the mind functions at the level of craving and aversion. So as a as, as a stream entrant, as you work on yourself and as things become clearer, there comes a crystallizing point where basically you realize that this mind of mine is existing in a series of mental states which are constantly changing. And every now and then one arises which is truly wholesome and wonderful. But the rest of them are all flawed. They're all contaminated by some degree of desire and aversion. And there comes this focus on changing that. In other words, it's a kind of desire. The stream entrant desires to have only wholesome mental states and to be free of the unwholesome mental states. And then there is a new transformation, another transformation that takes place in their mind where they become a once-returner. And they haven't eliminated desire and aversion, but desire and aversion has lost its compulsive power. They still experience desire and aversion. It still arises. But it is no longer this, this almost hopeless struggle. And if you succeed in not succumbing to desire on this occasion, it's going to get you on the next one sort of thing. And this, this stream entrance still is experiencing that. But the non-returner, uh, you know, and I gave you a description there. Did you read it? I said, uh, The 
intermediate stages of the non-returner, once-returner and non-returner on page 15. Even with the second path attainment, the stage of the once-returner, it is with great wonder and awe and amazement that one realizes the remarkable degree to which ordinary desires and aversions have mysteriously disappeared and simply don't arise in the same way they once did. And there is this experience of surprise and wonder in spite of all the practice that has been engaged in specifically to attain freedom from these afflictions. Because it's not something that has been brought about through will or intention. It is the result of a profound inner shift occurring at an entirely non-conscious level that comes about through repeatedly creating and sustaining the right causes and conditions. In other words, the brain rewires itself again in another way. And now, those desires and aversions are still there, but they are so much easier to deal with. And then the next stage of the non-return is achieved when desires and aversions for the material world for pleasures and pains of the ordinary kind has been overcome completely. The thing is that unhappiness, unhappiness is a kind of dissatisfaction. Happiness is satisfaction and contentment. Craving exists, desire and aversion exist when you want things to be different than the way they are. You're in, not in a place of acceptance of what is. And so craving is the result of dissatisfaction, or dissatisfaction is the result of craving, or Dissatisfaction and craving are so closely intertwined that it's hard to separate them from each other. And so, craving, dissatisfaction, if you have no desire and aversion, you have no dissatisfaction. You have satisfaction. You have happiness. And that happiness is, not, is no longer uh, so subject to what happens to you and what you get or what you lose. So this is what's happening in this third stage of the non-returner. Now the non-returner still has, so, so what we've done here is we've taken care at the conceptual level of our attachment to our personality view of our ego self as being real. You know, and that part of the brain hasn't stopped functioning. We can still separate our laundry from somebody else's and pay our bills and do everything else but we're not attached to it in the same way anymore. Then we moved on and we progressively overcame the slavery to the compulsion of desire and aversion. And when we did that, we achieved a kind of happiness that is now pretty rock solid. What we're left with is this very deep inherent sense of being a separate self. And 
we are still vulnerable to a particular kind of suffering that is related to the attachment to that feeling of separateness. There is there is a craving for continued existence in this form. There is while there is no longer uh, craving for the pleasures of the flesh, the sensory pleasures of the world, we no longer have the same degree of compulsion to pursue, pursue sensory pleasures or the admiration and adulation of others and so on and so forth. There is still a craving for certain more refined things. Of we call a fine material realm and the immaterial realm. These are things of the sphere of the mind itself. We are a consciousness with a mind and a mind of contents. And we're attached to that. And so this is our, this is our remaining vulnerability. This is our remaining craving. It's our remaining source of suffering. It is our remaining source of alienation from the rest of the world. We have a lot of compassion because all of the mental energy that in an ordinary person goes into, into the, the suffering craving complex, that same mental energy as you achieve more of a sense of uh, oneness and less of a sense of being, uh, being the self in need of constant cherishing and attention, that same energy then goes towards compassion. But the non-returner doesn't have the fully developed total compassion of an arahat because they still have the inherent sense of self and they're still attached to it. And, uh, oh, I forgot to bring my book in here. I'd really like to read to you a quote from... Uh, it's in, it's in my computer bag under the front. Uh, 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 one of the sutras from, uh, from a monk named Kirmaka, who was a non-returner. Why the term non-returner? Oh, it, it, non-returner comes from uh, the... Uh, this is somebody that never, ne- will never be reborn on the, in the sense the of the human plane. That they will experience at most one rebirth in the in the uh, heaven realms, at which, from which they will achieve total enlightenment. I thought returning is a choice. Uh, first of all, you have to formulate your your ideas in a form that uh, that makes returning a possibility. Okay, and. So what returns is not the personal self, okay? Right. Right. We can talk more about that. I just want to read this here. Um, This is... This is uh, a non-returner speaking. Questioned by elders, the elder Kamaka said, 
I do not find I, I do not see in these five categories affected by clinging in these five aggregates. I do not see in these five aggregates any self or soul property. Yet I am not an arhat with taints exhausted. On the contrary, I still have the attitude I am with respect to these five categories, uh, these five aggregates. Although I do not see I am this with respect to them, I do not say I am form, or I am feeling, or I am perception, or I am formations, or I am consciousness, nor do I say I am apart from consciousness, yet I still have the attitude I am. In other words, there's no longer I am this, I am that. There's no longer something that is identified as, as being the self, but there still is the sense that I am. Okay. Although a noble disciple may have abandoned the five more immediate fetters, which is what we started out talking about, we never did go through the second two formally, but anyway, although a noble disciple may have abandoned the five more immediate fetters, still his conceit, I am, his desire, I am, his underlying tendency, I am, with respect to the five aggregates, remains as yet unabolished. Later, he advised contemplating rise and fall thus, such as form, such as origin, such as disappearance, till by so doing, his conceit, I am, eventually comes to be abolished. This is what is overcome when the non-returner becomes an arahant, becomes a fully enlightened being. Go back to this list of fetters. The non-returner has overcome the first five of these. And we were talking about the first three that the stream entrant overcomes, and then four and five are sense desire, and uh, the second one is uh, usually ill will or hatred directed towards all forms, uh, all, all things in the sense realm. Can you explain that? So, I have a specific question. Yeah. You are so, not a stream mentor until you have overcome those three fetters. Mm-hmm. Because in my personal experience, and mm-hmm. I imagine it's the same for other people, you, you certainly have um, bubbles of that. You have mm-hmm. waves of that. You right. have um, maybe even months of that. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of re-consolidate um, or whatever you want to call it. And um, so so it, I, I guess I'm having a little bit of a hard time. It's not to me like something that, okay, now you're this and then you're that. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like this. It's kind of like this. <laughs> Well, if you if you have, I, I would say I'm not talking about you in particular, but if any person has a clear experience of this transformation that's described by overcoming these three fetters for an extended period of time of more than you know a few hours, I mean we any others can have 
uh, a really profound experience and we walk around for the rest of the week. You know, if, you, if the mushrooms did the job, you can walk around for the week, you know, knowing the, the completely different idea of reality and yourself. But what happens with that is it wears off and it doesn't come back. Now, if you have that kind of realization and it lasts for quite a long time, well, it's true, you might lose it for a little while. And that's what I would suggest to you is the, the real interpretation of the seven times return. But I would be very surprised if you, if you could really say to yourself, I've overcome these three fetters, and, and I have lived in this place for weeks and months, then you might lose it for periods of time, but it's not going to happen very often, and, uh, it's, and it's, not, it's not going to happen very many times, and eventually you're not going to lose it all. And that's what it means to be a stream enterer. Nobody's saying that the stream enterer never has a moment when they lose sight of what, what they have learned, but it doesn't last very long. And usually, as soon as you lose sight of the understanding of uh, the uh, illusory nature of your personal self, as soon as you uh, uh, lose, as soon as you begin to believe in other power rather than your own power, you are going to start experiencing suffering and you're going to start doing things that uh, are harmful for other beings. It, it just, it naturally comes out of that. You go back to doing the kinds of things that non-stream entrants do. And that is what's going to bring you out of it. You're going to start suffering, and you're going to suffer enough till you realize that, wow, this is ridiculous. Why, you know, why am I doing this? And you'll stop. And you'll realize, you'll reawaken. Like I, I used the example of somebody falls asleep, and they've woken up from the nightmare, and they doze off again, the nightmare starts up again. Well, you know, they wake up again pretty fast. So you can fall asleep a few times again, but it won't last very long, and you'll come out of it. Now, I don't know if this is describing what's happening with you or not, but somebody, and, and this is why, to say whether you or anybody else is a stream enterer, what we have to do is see what happens over time. Do you, have you achieved a permanent overcoming of these fetters uh, interrupted by temporary episodes of, of, of forgetting that don't last very long? And is this sustained over a long period of time, after six months, after a year, after two years? We could look and say, there's no question, you're a stream enterer, you should be working on the next stage, you should start to recognize the degree to which your desires and aversions are, are controlling and dominating your, your now much happier life. Right? And actually, it's your desires and aversions that are sending you into these temporary tailspins. So that's, that's what it means to be a stream enterer. No, it's not, it's not such a dramatic black and white thing that, you know, that's why I say you can't say, well, he can't be a stream enterer because I heard him get mad and kick the cat. You can't say that. And 
And likewise, you can't say somebody is a stream enterer because they say, oh, I had this wonderful experience and I realized I was one with everything and that, you know, uh, ever since then I've been so happy. Neither those, that doesn't by itself tell us anything. We have to see what happens over a period of time. But they are dramatic changes and they are permanent changes. And if you watch over time, that, that becomes obvious, it becomes apparent. So, yes. In, in on number four, sensual overcoming uh, sensual desire. Mm-hmm. Does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it means? <laughs> well, <laughs> does that mean no desire for sex? Well, as a matter of fact, it does. Well, I'm not going there. <laughs> I have my rights. <laughs> no. I mean, really? <laughs> it doesn't mean that you can't have sex, and it doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. So, but you can't want it. <laughs> not that it's forbidden. Yeah, but you can't want it, right? <laughs> not, not that you can't, it's that you just simply don't. don't. Oh. What you don't have, <laughs> what you don't have is that compulsion that arises that, oh, I really want to have sex. I'm going to feel so good if I have sex. I'm going to feel so bad if I don't have sex. That doesn't happen. But you, you're... you're you're capable of having sex, but your motivations for having sex become different. Different. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it wouldn't be sex for sex's sake. No, it wouldn't be sex for sex. It wouldn't be sex coming out of a compulsion to have sex. Okay, not compelled. Okay. I can live with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, really scared me. <laughs> You wouldn't believe how nice it is not to have compulsions, to have things like sex. Mm-hmm. Or can you believe that? Can you mm-hmm. understand that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I can. Can you say the part about as long as you are relying on a power outside yourself? Mm-hmm. As long as you believe that there is such a thing as possible, then you have the <clears throat> at the level of cognition, there's a degree of understanding that you have not yet achieved, and that means that there's a part of your mind that is not going to have completely changed the way that it works. And so you're going to still be vulnerable uh, as a result of that in a way that you won't be when you realize. When you, when you see through completely the illusion of other power, um,
that make sense to you? Mm. Well, yeah. so you're talking about like the power of money, the power of sex, the power of uh... the power of rites and rituals. Right. And you believe that, well, if I perform these ceremonies, then I will become a man. <coughs> if I follow these rules, um, then uh, the act of following these rules is going to bring good fortune to me. Which now, virtue does bring good fortune for clear and understandable reasons. It is not because you know. Uh, I think the. I mean, this is this is a universally true uh, statement that the belief in the other power of rules and rites and rituals and ceremonies is a fetter and impediment and uh, a problem. And that when we overcome that, well, that when we see things as we really are, that that automatically falls away. That's what's being said. But you can also, to understand what the meaning of this is uh, in the context of the Buddhist time and Buddhist teaching, the Brahmanical tradition taught that what happened to you in the future was the result of karma. And karma was your uh, fulfilling your role in society, following all the rules, performing all the rituals, and doing it in just the right way. For the Brahman himself, he had three fires that he kept going. He performed all kinds of rituals that were intended to basically keep the whole world happening the way it was, uh, make sure the rains fell and things like that, would perform other rituals uh, for money for other people who were not Brahmins and therefore did not have the power to perform the rituals themselves. <clears throat> but everyone of any of the castes, there were certain ways that they were supposed to behave, uh, ways they were supposed to treat parents, uh, husbands, wives, uh, those of higher caste, those of lower caste, uh, ways they're supposed to conduct their life in terms of their jobs and things like that. This was all called uh, karma. And uh, the belief was that whatever happened to you in the future was going to be the result of your karma. And Buddha redefined karma. He said, karma all happens inside here that there is not some unknown force or power uh, somewhere keeping track that says, oh, but Cheryl did such and such, she's going to get that back one of these days. <laughs> 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 yeah. that's, what's being, that's what's being understood does not exist. That the Buddha taught karma as being the conditioning that we create in ourselves. We condition ourselves. Every thought that we have plays a role in determining who will we, we will be and what we will experience in the future. So it's not 
there's nothing external to you to turn towards. You have to turn within, and you have to take responsibility for your own karma. This is what he's talking about. You, you're freed of that illusion. You know, making the sacrifice and telling, saying the prayers isn't going to do me any good. On the other hand, rituals and ceremonies still can be used because they can help me to condition my mind in a different way. I can do loving-kindness meditation, and I'm creating karma when I do that. For that matter, when I sit and do any meditation, I'm creating karma. I'm conditioning my mind. Everything I do is creating karma. But deciding that, well, if I do this because it's a good act, then some other power is going to give me a benefit for it in the future. That's what we get rid of. That's what we're letting go of. Yes? Um, you said you have to see through the illusion of the other power. Um, and that's, I guess, and you're still talking about that, but yeah. I'm, well, I'm a little bit on the wayside here. Oh, okay. Um, when I think of other power, I think of higher power. Mm-hmm. And are you saying that any belief in a higher power is going to be make you vulnerable? Uh, in this particular soteriological system, in this system to take you to the salvation of enlightenment, it is. If you were a Christian, a surrender to a higher power uh, is a viable method. But it is only a viable method within that whole system. You have to have the. You have to take the whole conceptual framework and all the practices that belong in it. There is uh, a path to enlightenment that's called bhakti devotion. And so, but this is not a bhakti path. The higher power is not other power. It is the Buddha nature within us, and it already exists. And what we have to do is to remove the defilements from it. We have to overcome the fetters, overcome the defilements, remove the afflictions. And the Buddha nature helps us to do that. We appeal to the Buddha nature within us. So it's not another power. It's a different way of looking at it. Yes? Um, I used to attend Yeah. And um, it seemed an awful lot like devotion. It yes. was a Buddhist thought, mm-hmm. but it really smacked of religion to me. It is. It, it is. is, yes. No question about it. A lot, in any Buddhist country, you'll go and see well, a lot of what happens in the temples, a lot of what uh, lay Buddhists do, and a lot of what the monastics serve is religious Buddhism. And it involves a belief in itself, it involves a belief in other power, uh, all of these things. This is, in, in this little discussion here, we've, we're, we're reminding ourselves of two important distinctions we have to make. We have to distinguish between religion and any mystical path. And then we have to recognize that there are different mystical paths 
which in terms of what we covered, you know, last night, what we talked about, are amazingly similar in where they go. But they go by different right by different routes, by different processes. And so the bhakti path is not the same as the Buddhist path. You know, or the Christian path is a kind of bhakti path. And they're both mystical paths. But religious Christianity and religious Buddhism, neither one of those is the mystical path either. And neither one of them will lead either to union in God through Christ or to the stages of enlightenment. Yes? What is um, with the belief in, in the mystery, in the power of mystery, like when I don't understand the big picture yet, when I'm still wherever I give that literally to I don't know, and it feels like a freedom, so I can work with that, and it's not a power in terms, I believe that they give me back when I, you know, whatever I did wrong or, or good, but it is a power of... I, I let go of my control, of mm -hmm. I can figure it out right now, yeah. and it helps me immensely. Yeah, that's I, good. That's really good. But when you become a stream nutrient, that will fall away. You'll okay. say, oh, that worked, <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, that's good, but I don't believe in that anymore. Now I realize, okay. you know, now my doubt has gone away. Now I know mm -hmm. there is such a thing as enlightenment. Now I have experienced the Buddha nature within me. So and you think it's related to doubt in my in my own capac capacity of enlightenment when I give this to the mystery? Um, it might be. I don't know. Is it? Look in yourself and see. Uh, it might come, but it comes from for some reason or other. For whatever reason, whether it's doubt or whether it's something else, um, the way your mind works. This, this is the way you look at it, and it works for you, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when your mind changes the way it works, you won't, you won't do that in the same way anymore. Okay? okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, emulate an enlightened being, but don't try to force yourself to be other than what you are. Mm -hmm. if, if praying to a greater power helps you now, then don't look at it and say, well, stream entrance or enlightened beings no longer uh, believe in the power of rites and rituals, so I shouldn't do that. That would be a big mistake. You're giving up something that works for you. It will fall away by itself in the end. Now, the way you should look at as far as emulating an enlightened being, if, if you find yourself thinking that rather than working on myself through mindfulness, uh, my friend so-and-so said that all I really have to do is put so many cups on the altar and light so many candles and chant so many words. That sounds a lot easier. That's going to be a real big mistake. That's where you should say, uh, no, enlightened beings don't trust to rites and rituals to achieve the results. So I'm going to emulate an enlightened being. But when I find something in myself that the best way to deal with it is to turn it over to a higher power, and it works, then I'm going to do that. So you see? Mm -hmm. yeah. right. That's a good illustration. I'm glad that came up. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes? Could you talk about anger a little bit in terms of uh, someone who's experienced, but as compared to a stream mentor? As compared to? The stream mentor. The stream mentor. Well... <clears throat> 
Um, we all are, you know, we're, we're programmed to generate emotion of anger under certain kinds of circumstances and to act out of it. And to the degree that it has served us, that's been positively reinforced over our lives. Um, to the degree that it hasn't, it's been negatively reinforced. Some people find themselves very prone to anger. But it is a, an innate emotional response that has been amplified by conditioning. And so what you need to do is to change the conditioning. You need to replace the old conditioning with the new conditioning and to overcome your anger. Now, a person a, a person who's not a stream entrant uh, can do this uh, and will need to do this. And as a matter of fact, uh, it's a necessary part of becoming a stream entrant to work on these things. You need to work on, on your anger. But you won't necessarily have completely overcome anger and your conditioning towards anger when you become a stream entrant. The difference is that after stream entry, you'll have much more powerful tools to work with to continue in the process. So your anger will uh, not, uh, not be so resistant to your mindfulness and to uh, your abilities to overcome it. And you'll be much less likely to act as freely out of the anger and regret it afterwards. Not that it won't happen because uh, you'll still have whatever conditioning towards anger that you brought with you as you pass that threshold. But it will be far easier to deal with. But yeah, And you'll need to continue deal with it, dealing with it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it's a start. Yeah. Yes. Um, eventually you come to a point where there is no more anger. So you can look forward to that. It, it, it does. It is. It is one of the changes that takes place in us. But uh, until you've reached that point, you'll need to continue working on it. Because even though you may have, when you come to the point where you completely overcome anger, uh, the week before you may have still experienced the arising of anger even though because of your work on it, it didn't overwhelm you, and even though it wasn't so intense, and even though you didn't necessarily act on it, you still experienced that mental state arising. And then the transformation comes to the non-returner, and you'll find that that anger thing, whatever it is, it just doesn't happen anymore. So that's that's the wonderful transition. So. Uh, but in the meantime, until you reach that, you just keep whittling away at it as best you can. And you can't really afford to back off. Because if you say, well, okay, once I become a non-returner, the anger problem will be solved, so I'm just going to ignore it. Because continuing to work on it, not the degree of success you have, but the fact of continuing to work on it is part of what gets you to become a non-returner. Hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so.